Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Today's quote is from a Wall Street Journal piece by Betsy Morris called, Why Does Zoom Exhaust You? Science Has an Answer. She says, Communication is an exquisite interplay of talk, gestures, movement, and timing between people that scientists call synchrony. This complex interaction is so basic that researchers who discovered it between adults later found it happens in newborns, and infant's movements synchronize with the speech of its caretaker as early as the first day of life. The synchrony found in face-to-face communication is possible over video in ideal circumstances, according to a yet unpublished dissertation by Jingjing Han, who recently received a doctorate in media arts and sciences from Indiana University. But she too finds Zoom to be exhausting. She suspects that's because humans are driven to achieve synchrony and work hard cognitively to achieve it. On Zoom, quote, we are working very hard to synchronize with each other, she says. And that'll be the next phase of her research. Working hard. There you go. Welcome to Permission to Speak, the podcast about how we talk and how we get ourselves heard with me, Samara Bay. Today's guest is Elise Hogue. She is a lifelong activist and organizer with a true gift for making big abstract ideas feel like really personal and really human. For the last uh, seven years, she's been the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America, which is the other massive organization alongside uh, Planned Parenthood that advocates for reproductive justice at the national level. Uh, NARAL, by the way, has tripled its membership under her leadership to 2.5 million people. And uh, it's been front and center at the fights to reunite families at the border, which is something that we talk about in this interview, Uh, the Kavanaugh hearings, 
where she literally over text was giving me my marching orders here in LA. And I mean, obviously in the fight to push back against this insane wave of abortion bans at the state level over the last few years. She also made history when she spoke about her own abortion on the stage of the Democratic National Convention in 2016, which obviously I asked her all about here. I wanted to have Elise on because she is a friend, but she is a powerhouse, an inspiration, and honestly, a true leader when we are so desperate, or I, maybe, am so desperate for someone to look up to. I mean, right? We talk very specifically about how to find hope, like not fake hope, in our somewhat dystopian crisis. Um, How she thinks about public speaking, which for any activists or would-be activists listening in or politicians coming up, her perspective uh, totally blew my mind. And we also talked about her new book that just came out, The Lie That Binds, about how abortion became such a wedge issue anyway. I mean, (laughs) the answer has to do with a conference call that changed everything. Fun fact, Elise is married to John Neffinger, who I had on the podcast back in March. So this is my first permission to speak power couple, guys. Uh, And second fun fact, Elise and I uh, met through some mutual friends when I was living in D.C. for the summer two years ago. Uh, Dialect coaching Gal Gadot on the new Wonder Woman movie, which we like took over the city and we're shooting, you know, everywhere. Basically, what I'm trying to say is that my version of our nation's capital is all about Wonder Woman and Elise Hoag, uh, which feels pretty synonymous. This is Elise. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you first um, the question that you've been asking of what are you doing to stay sane? <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know what? I, it sounds silly. Um, partly what we've been doing to save, stay sane is a lot of family dance parties. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids are really into family dance parties. And then um, I make sure that I schedule at least at least one meeting a day that is not on Zoom, that is only on phone so I can get an hour of walking around outside in a oh, day yeah. at least. Yeah. Do you do you feel like you think differently while you're walking? Like, do those conversations end up going differently? Uh, yes, I do. I think that, um, you know, like change of scenery and change of perspective is actually crucially, crucially important in the ability for us. You know, we all get in ruts. We all sort of tell ourselves the same stories and it's really hard to change that. So any sort of difference in our external environment will will catalyze differences in our internal sort of monologue. And that's really important to make sure we're I not. Say, though, also, it's, it sounds like both of those things um, uh, have to do with physically moving as well. And there is something about like the, you know, the the deep wisdom of our bodies that we sometimes forget when we're sitting all day. Well, and I think we forget how deeply connected our voice is to the rest of our body, right? That we cannot actually have a powerful voice if we have a body that doesn't feel powerful, whatever that means to us. You know, people have different abilities, do that in different ways, but we have to be focused on the idea of what makes me feel physically powerful, emotionally powerful, spiritually powerful. All of that coalesces into 
how our voice is projected and heard in the world. Well, and not to get like super patriarchy from the beginning, but I think it is a massive patriarchal move to try to separate our brains from our bodies. I mean, so much of our wisdom does not live in our head. And if we think it does and only does, then like we're somewhat fucked. <laughs> I, <laughs> professionally I couldn't speaking. agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I want to talk about your Democratic National Convention speech in 2016. You got on the stage in a stunning red dress and said this this quote that I think has resonated with, you know, the country for years now. It's not as simple as bad girls get abortions and good girls have families. We're the same women at different times in our lives, each making decisions that are best for us. What was your decision to give that speech? It boiled down to with the platform comes privilege and therefore I have to use this opportunity to speak to my own personal experience as emblematic of such a common experience in this world and also not just that these sort of things that we're talking about are theory. They're not theory. They're deeply, deeply personal. Um, That being said, That was a real journey for me. As I tell people, it was never on my bucket list to get on Mm -hmm. a stage in front of millions of viewers and uh, tell some of the most innermost uh, personal experiences of my life. Um, And, you know, I, I look forward to a day where nobody has to do that for policy to reflect the right ethical and public health outcomes. But um, I, I, you know, I did it. And and the thing that I always tell people, because it feels important to me, is um, it was terrifying, right? Like, I don't want people to be like, oh, she's just so brave and courageous that she could do that. It was absolutely terrifying. It was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. Um, So confronting that fear because I knew that it was an opportunity and an imperative for me to do so has been a tremendous growth experience. Um, But I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that I just sort of sauntered up there without fear, completely comfortable in my own skin, and gave that speech. Was it scarier, like, in the lead-up or in the moment or after? Like, what was your relationship <laughs> with, the, with that fear? How did it move? No, I will say in the lead-up, it was definitely the most scary. And, you know, like, you, you have the stage and you've convinced yourself that, you know, the, the privilege and the responsibility piece is there. And then you're like, well, if I flub it, it's not just me flubbing it, but it's everything I stand for and all of that. And, you know, I, you know, I, I'm in a business where backlash is sort of part of, uh, the daily experience, but that felt like even greater exposure. Um, so I will say, uh, I definitely kept my eyes trained on the Texas delegation in the convention hall because I'm a Texan and I know where I sort of draw my power. It's from my people rooting for me and they were. Um, And, you know, like many things, when we confront our fears, they turn out to be incredibly empowering. And so the aftermath was actually lovely in that what I found is that by exercising my own voice, that I, um, in that way, that I catalyzed other people wanting to participate in their own ability to tell their own stories. And there was a piece on Scary Mommy, which is this mothering blog. Um, I know you know, but I don't know if your listeners know. No, I love it. Thank Um, you. 
incredibly well read. Um, you know, about four days after my speech, um, with the mother saying, I'm a Republican, I had an abortion, and I'm tired of feeling ashamed of it. I want to use my voice to tell my story. And to me, that was all the payback I needed. The idea that my voice could help catalyze someone else finding their own. Yeah. And it's why we do scary things. Um, I also met you the day that I then walked with you to a rally in 2018 in D.C. the summer of um, when we first all— You physically met me. I physically met you. I did know you through the internet a little bit before that. Uh, and and it was the summer that we all found out about um, what was going on at the border and the families being separated. And I had reached out to attend a rally to ask you, you know, as the knower of all things in D.C., and you said, I'm actually going to be speaking at this one. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I walked with you and your kids. And then you, I'm sure, remember uh, what happened with one of your children during— um, during that rally, do you will you will you tell me what it felt like to, to be doing that? <laughs> so, um, what Samar's referring to, I was speaking at a rally on family separation. Um, I often do not uh, take my children to these events, but we chose to. My parents were in town, and um, during my speech, my son, who is was then and remains um, quite some quite sort of sensitive and empathetic, um, I think was overcome by the emotion of the crowd and started wailing and walked up to me while I was on the microphone wailing. And I'm a mom, so I picked him up. I comfort him. That's what I do. And um, it felt very important to me to acknowledge that moment, um, again, as one of privilege, but as one that I felt like so many people could relate to, which is, here's my son. He's crying. He needs comforting. The simple privilege of being able to pick him up and hold him and comfort him is something that was being denied to so many parents in that moment who were undergoing an excruciating and special form of torture and hearing their children wail from other rooms and not be able to comfort them. And my hope was that that fundamental common experience that we all share, regardless of what our political affiliation is, regardless of anything, could ground us in what was really being lost in that moment. Not only for those individual parents who are undergoing that torture, but for a collective soul as a nation. How did you prepare for that? And how do you prepare for these sort of rally type um, (laughs) speeches that feel like there's an element of sort of off the cuff and like bullet points that you're used to talking about, but how do you sort of collect your mind before these? Because they're all, they're all, they're not, they don't always have your son in your arms, but they all are somewhat emotionally fraught due to the nature of your job. It's true. Um, And I think we all sort of gravitate towards different mediums for communication, right? Like the expectation of my profession is that I will speak at rallies, I will engage in debates, I will go on TV, and those are all different for me, and I actually experience different anxieties around (laughs) each one of them. Um, I am an extreme extrovert, so actually speaking to rally crowds is more comfortable to me. Not that I don't get nervous, I always get nervous, but it is more comfortable to me because I can, in real time, feed on the energy of the crowd, as opposed to being locked in a little television studio with just a camera trained on you and not knowing what if what you're saying is resonating in any way. Um, but, you know, it's it has become really important to me to remember that 
um, my energy is as important to what the crowd will experience as my words, right? So what I'm projecting in terms of my own emotional landscape and emotional experience um, is going to catalyze a response that is probably going to supersede the words that are coming out of my mouth. And so um, it's not that words are unimportant because words are very important. And I do prepare, although I really don't script out rally remarks because I think there is an important element of spontaneity there and um, and relating to people in real time. But I really think, you know, when we were fighting Kavanaugh's confirmation and it was so long and it was so hard and it was so painful for so many people, um, my, my preparation was about legitimately, legitimately, not faking it, being able to express hope, optimism, and um, the sense of power that came from being in collective engagement with so many different people that would pay dividends beyond the single confirmation. Not that the confirmation was unimportant. It was hugely important. But I really wanted people to understand, because the odds were stacked against us, right, that even if we lost the vote count on this confirmation, they could never take away from us what we had experienced through this collective fight together and how that would change the landscape of everything politically and socially moving forward. And so when I thought about my speeches for those rallies, it became hugely important to be able to authentically express that to people. Because when we disengage, when we cease to use our voices and our energy in charting out a future of hope and optimism, the other side wins. Yeah. And, you know, relatedly, just for each of us in our own lives, if we're not talking about, you know, high-level events with the stakes as high as you're talking about, but just literally speaking up for ourselves in a meeting or, or trying to tell people what we do in a way where we're actually connected emotionally to how much we care about what we do, uh, there are some lessons there as well in terms of, like, not going just for teaching people information, but for inspiring them, that you're that you're talking about, you know, sort of thinking differently about what it is to communicate, that it isn't just words connect to, to, to ears, but that it's like feelings and humans connect to humans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we have. That's our superpower. You know, I say this all the time, um, regardless of whether you work in sort of corporate America or, um, you know, cultural theater and entertainment or politics like I do, Our superpower is the fact that we can interweave this tapestry of voices together that demonstrates the breadth and depth of what it means to center stories of the majority in a way that the the powers that be who are fighting for the status quo and resisting change, they'll never have that because their stories are monolithic, their voices are monolithic, they're often dispassionate in a moment where people are crying out for passion to catalyze change. And so we should never tamp down our emotions in the ways that we tell our stories and use our voices. And by the way, that in and of itself challenges one of the prevailing notions of the patriarchy that emotions are bad, right? That um, we, you know, somehow our emotions make us weaker. That, That is a story they have fed to us for hundreds of years to keep us down. That 
our ability to tap deep into our emotions to channel a different future, that is our superpower. We should always use it. I mean, everything you're saying is making me cry. So (laughs) um, obviously I'm uh, following you into that future. Um, There's this element of uh, public speaking, stereotypically for women, although I know many men deal with this too, that when we're up uh, on a stage or whatever the metaphor is now, when we're all eyes are on us in a Zoom meeting, God knows when there's no public to speak in, um, that uh, instantly we're worried about ourselves. And this, the, you know, all of the anxieties come up. And often the, the answer is to reconnect to the why of why we're speaking and the for, the for them-ness. And I wonder if this is something that you think about when you're, you know, up there. It sounds like certainly in terms of getting energy from the crowd, but that there's this idea of speaking up for those without a voice and in very vulnerable positions. And then there's also this idea that it's freeing to speak, mm-hmm. to, to, ha- to hear our voice when we know it's for others. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm, uh, you know, uh, at risk of being a little bit contrarian, um, while I do understand and lean into the privilege that comes with the platform, I actually don't really think of it as speaking up for other people as much as creating space and hopefully incentive for people to speak for themselves. Um, You know, a little known fact about me is that I'm an ecologist by trade. And um, early on, I learned that the strongest systems are the ones that actually embrace diversity and work together towards a common goal. And so um, the way that I, you know, the way that I think about that is how can I um, model for people who are reticent to speak the fact that speaking up is liberating. Speaking up is actually um, where we tap into our greatest power and then when offered the stage, try and expand that stage for more voices. Um, because again, in the collective lies our ultimate strength. I'm also an organizer. And so, you know, I've I've worked on lots of different issues throughout the years, democracy reform, climate change, um, human rights. And I see um, working on reproductive freedom as very much a part of human rights. Um, but, you know, a lot, you know, when people ask me what drives me as an organizer, a lot of it is actually that incredibly powerful feeling when you see someone who felt like they couldn't exercise their own power and their own voice actually realize that they can. You know, one of the greatest things that we heard coming out of the Kavanaugh fight um, was so many people saying, if Dr. Christine Blasey Ford could use her voice in such an incredibly challenging situation, surely I can pick up the phone and call voters or knock on doors, even though that gives me great anxiety. And one of the things I always tell people who choose to engage in canvassing for elections is, yeah, it's hard. Knock on that door, pick up that phone, make that phone call, and make sure that you are telling people why you are doing it. Because people are going to be motivated by the fact that you, who they've never met, is confronting your own fears, taking time out of what everybody has as a very busy schedule and spending it this way. So the idea of being able to sort of create a contagion effect around that excitement and empowering from um, using your voice, that it's deeply motivating to me. 
I feel like you're on a first name basis with every um, leader in Washington, D.C. <laughs> when you think about like sort of the future, if you were to talk to somebody who wanted to run for office or become a career advocate, what do you think is required of their public persona, question mark, term, something, voice, uh, in terms of the of of what sort of rules are required? It sounds like the main one that you're talking about is about connecting to our bodies, connecting to our sense of inspiration, the why. But I also wonder if we're talking really technically and knowing that um, we had your husband on this show. Do you have advice for for sort of how to think about what it is to scale up these versions of ourselves that aren't necessarily like the most, you know, straight white male versions of ourselves? <laughs> you know, running for office is a really intense experience as I've observed. I've never run for office myself. And, you know, to be quite frank, it's not an aspiration of mine. Um, I think there are all sorts of way to, ways to find and express power and you don't have to sort of run for office to do that. That being said, I am a big fan of people that choose that path because we absolutely need great people in um, office at the state and federal level to affect change. Um, I, you know, I think, A, know that know from the outset that your entire life is going to be scrutinized, right? And in fact, find that an empowering experience. When I think of some of the amazing leaders that have emerged, um, you know, just since Trump, and I could go back before that because I have lots of role models and icons who predated Trump, Barbara Lee being one of them. But, uh, you know, if you think about and. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, but even uh, Haley Stevens, who actually shares almost nothing demographically or in terms of her district, what I see is people who are proud of the lives that they lived, bringing their full selves to their election campaign with no apologies. And what I think voters respond to is a combined sense of authenticity pride in the way you've lived your life, and an openness to hearing their own lived experience and welcoming their voices into the debate. And so I just really love that idea that instead of sort of shrinking in fear that your whole life is going to be exposed if you run for office, be like, great, we all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. In fact, the people who decided they were going to run for office from the time they were five years old and led their whole life carefully are the least interesting ones, right? And so what does it actually mean to embrace that as a positive and empowering thing and use your voice as powerfully to talk about the mistakes that you have made because we all make them as well as the lessons you've learned and the things you're deeply proud of in your life. I think that is really what both voters and our country is responding to in this moment. Um, fucking hell, Lise. So good. We're going to take a quick break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. 
With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Okay, we're back with Elise Hogue, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. So we're talking about UpTalk. UpSpeak? What yes. What did it? you wait? Tell, tell me. Tell me real fast. What was the, what was the note you got? Or is this repeated notes? Or no, was this no, one? Yeah. I mean, early. I mean, early and like well into my career, it's that thing that happens where almost exclusively white men would be like, "Oh my God, you're so talented. I love working with you." But you should know that you do this thing where you sort of like end your sentences with a, a thing that sounds almost like you're asking a question and it really undercuts sort of the point that you're trying to make. And again, this was coming from people that I hugely respect and actually still consider friends and professional colleagues. So it wasn't, you know, I, in no. many ways it was shared as a like, here's, it's it's like I'm trying to help you. And I didn't really have any context within which to process that, you know, that it's like, very typical, as I understand it, you're the expert, um, it's gendered speech, right? Like women are much more likely to use uptalk and um, therefore, is it just, does it really undercut your power if you do it or is it just that's not what men do and so men think it under, you know, like it's very confusing. And then uh -huh. of course, nobody was like, so here's what you do about it. So it was just a little bit of being like conscious and self-conscious about the fact that it was a deeply endemic speech pattern for me and I didn't know how to fix it. Yeah. No, and and like, look, some of some of up speak, up talk is just habit. Just we've picked it up because the people around us speak that way because yeah, that is, you know, often a marker of feminine speech. Uh, and sometimes when we do that, it is disconnected from the meaning of the thought and it is just habitual in this way where, where every thought goes up. And then it is actually harder to hear it, you know? So are you taking a picture? I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, um, and so the question is like, you know, A, do you need to do anything about it? Do we need to take out the markers of feminine speech to sound more masculine in a masculine-dominated world? A, it is a question. There is not a yes or no answer that is, you know, the same for everybody. Um, but B... 
is the version that we can look at the version where we're doing we're doing this pattern that's actually not helping us communicate as well as we want to communicate regardless of gender if we can ever live in a world that is regardless of gender and also one of the things that i've come to which is sort of why i, I love what you do is not everybody has to do the same thing right so we can acknowledge we have lived in for eons a world that's dominated by a predominantly white, predominantly male patriarchy, right? And therefore, um, you know, if your ultimate goal is to gain their attention to achieve something, maybe you don't focus on fighting the tyranny of the uptalk, but at the same time, you encourage people who do that so that transformation sort of builds on itself, if that makes sense. I mean, of course, like the the the, the journey that I am on, the journey that, that many of us are on is to um, both make small adjustments that don't hurt our soul in the moment in order to be heard and also change the system over time so that we don't have to be making these small adjustments in the long run. And the moment that we get any power at all in any spaces that are scary you know, we are in a position, as you talk about, of having uh, the privilege of our platform. What can we do now to help the next people? I couldn't agree with you more. Thanks, love. Um, speaking of patriarchy, I want to talk about your book, The Lie That Binds. And I want to start by saying um, that there were some amazing blurbs to the book. Uh, my favorite is Alyssa Mastermonico, who said, um, to all feminists who dream of overthrowing the patriarchy, start here. <laughs> yeah, we I mean it uh writing a book as as you will learn if you have not already um an incredibly intense experience um that really is about putting your voice out there in an entirely different way and it's such a deep emotional and time investment um and you get to the end and you're like, "Oh my god, will everyone hate this? Will anyone read it?" And so um, you know, the the process of asking people who you really respect to read and blurb your book is really scary. And so I was really honored by the fact that some people who have really um, been incredibly formative to my own analysis, the way that I think about my own role and my own voice, agreed to um, blurb the book and use their own voices to lift mine up. It's just an incredibly moving experience. Uh, I want to point out another one as well. This is Zerlina Maxwell. Uh, she said the book is, quote, an unflinching look at the true origins of the right-wing obsession with keeping half of the population, scare quotes, in their place. Mm -hmm. It's totally true. I mean, one of the things that we sought to do with the book is uh, really expose the central lie of the radical right, right? They've gotten away very literally with murder <laughs> through the decades uh, by actually wrapping themselves in this faux moral shroud about claiming that they have investment in individual outcomes of people's pregnancies, and they don't at all. In fact, what the book lays out is a very cynical and intentional campaign late, actually pretty late in the history of legalized abortion to weaponize abortion as a form of oppression that would maintain the status quo that they wanted to see and use our own ability to reproduce as weapons against women, pregnant people, uh, women of color specifically. And so um, exposing that lie 
felt really important to thinking strategically about how we move forward because they have gotten away with it for a really long time. And in fact, just some of the things the book talks about, their fight, actually, they mobilized into politics when they were not that political prior to that fighting school desegregation. They didn't even land on abortion as a thing to talk about, much less fight, until the late 70s when Roe had made abortion legal in all 50 states five years prior. And so our ability to actually fight the opposition, use this moment as one of transformation for racial and gender equity, lies in really understanding the accurate history of a radical right that has gripped the country um, and having that common analysis to be able to move forward, you know, in in a spirit together that requires understanding how race and gender and sexual orientation and sexual identity, gender identity, um, is all tied up in their campaign for oppression. Yeah, yeah. You've said a lot about this need to sort of know our history know their history. Uh-huh. Uh, and I would, I'd love you to actually just talk a little bit more specifically uh, the, this idea. I mean, I heard you say on an interview last week, they were really mad about birth control being legal for unmarried women because uh, they were sexually empowered, but also this very specific thing that if we entered the workplace and did not leave because of unintended pregnancies, there goes their power. I think it's true. I think one of the things that gets sort of lost because we have um, allowed them to write the history for so long, and this is an attempt, this book is an attempt to reclaim the narrative, um, is that people talk about 1973 and the decision um, in Roe v. Wade as a transformational point. And it certainly was. And I want to take nothing away from that. You know, like actually having legal and safe abortion has made a material difference in countless lives. So I don't want to take anything away from that. But we failed to tell the story of what happened a year before when the Supreme Court handed down a decision making um, birth control legal for unmarried women, right? And Mm. so there were a couple different things going on. One was just this like absolute indignation that women could dare to have sex for pleasure without the repercussion of potentially getting pregnant and being, you know, in a a position of changing their whole lives to parent, because we as parents know you change your whole life to parent. Oh my God, how dare women have sex for pleasure? And then complementing that was the sense of like, oh, whoa, birth control meant that women were going into the workplace, staying in the workplace because they were able to plan their families and challenging the hegemony of power and control that men had enjoyed over economic systems for a long time, right? That They were demanding pay equity. Oh my God. They were demanding access to C-suites and decision-making. They were no longer just biding their time until they got pregnant and entered full-time motherhood. They were actually wanting to see through their own visions. And this was challenging men's ideas of who was in charge in ways that we never talk about and we never actually had experienced before. And so part of understanding the history is understanding why, you know, people always express surprise to me that these people who claim to be anti-abortion also are anti 
contraception, which we saw last week at the Supreme Court or a couple of weeks ago at the Supreme Court. Well, for them, it really is truly about women's role in society. And if you're not adhering to that, you are jeopardizing their strong sense of what's right and wrong, what family looks like. And um, God forbid, you might actually educate their women about what they could do with their lives if they weren't adhering to these rigid beliefs of women's role in society. So, yes, and um, in in many ways it's working and has worked. And now that, you know, I, I look at the timeline, that's like literally the length of my life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that that you've talked about, and I think one of the ways in which you are a leader is to remind us that progress doesn't always move forward uh, in this straight line that we all want to believe in, that we have to actually make it happen, and sometimes it doesn't work, and sometimes we backslide. And I wonder specifically about, you know, part of what I loved about Zerlina's quote up there, that this is an unflinching look at what the right wing has done, is this unflinching part, because I wonder what it is that you do to you know, handle the hope side of your job. How do you, strategically speaking, continue to, you know, find your reserves? Well, I mean, look, one of the reasons that we wrote so specifically, I wrote so specifically, um, I, you know, I framed this book as a collaborative effort because it is of NARAL's research and analysis. Um, So, you know, one of the reasons that we explicitly laid out in the book the piece about the birth control is both because we have to recognize the hypocrisy in some of their existing stances. But when they chose abortion, which they did on this conference call, casting about (gasps) for a new issue to weaponize after previous efforts had failed, they gambled. And what they gambled on was the idea that there was still sufficient stigma in our culture around both women who were sexually empowered and willing to say, hey, I want to have sex for pleasure and not just to procreate, right? And then this very deep idea that if you did get pregnant and you chose that carrying that pregnancy to term and becoming a parent in that moment was not the thing you most wanted to do, that you are selfish and a betrayal of women in the most honestly, in the most biblical sense, right? And women being called selfish has been a way of keeping us down for a very long time. So they gambled that those attitudes were so pervasive in society that even for an overwhelming number of people who supported legal access to abortion, they wouldn't want to engage in the conversation because these are deeply held stigmas and societal beliefs, and they gambled correctly right? So essentially, they said, we're going to move an agenda that is not good for or backed by the majority of people in this country. And the way that we're going to effectively do that is by buying silence, by tapping into these deep stigmas. And they gambled correctly. And so part of this book is to actually challenge people to reclaim our voices and our own stories and shed that stigma and stand in our own power. And you asked about my emotional reserves. That's what it comes from. It comes from this understanding that knowledge can lead to action that can lead to power, power on behalf of the many and not the few. And every time I see us inch closer to that, it always starts with breaking the silence. 
And it always fills me up and makes me believe we can have exponential effect when we lean into generally conversations, but certainly conversations that have held people down for so long. It also makes me think that for those of us listening who want to challenge ourselves to have more difficult conversations, that practically speaking, what we can do to break through that discomfort and, you know, literally open our mouth and literally have sounds come out is is to tap into that same collective power. I think that's totally right. And, you know, it's transforming the sort of definition of power, like traditional patriarchal forms of power is very monolithic, very homogenous. The Mm -hmm. idea that one person will go on to be president of the United States, which is the most important thing you could do, the pinnacle of success. And actually, I think that's great if people want to do that. But power comes from living in community, centralizing the needs of the collective. Like Those are the most durable communities. Those are the most durable civilizations. Those are the most durable ecosystems if you look in nature. And that's the, that is our challenge in this moment, to transform that definition of power and weave all of the voices that are being surfaced, resonate them, and put them into this tapestry that changes our future. I'd like to live in that world. We do live in that world. We just have to get louder and louder. Exactly. Um, I I specifically want to call this out that you said um, in the book that you hope readers will think about how our own personal struggles or discomfort with thinking or talking about abortion might be preventing us from, quote, fully engaging in the fight for freedom, racial and gender justice, and democracy that lays before us. It's this subtle, subtle stuff, right? I think it is. I think it is very subtle and very sinister. And it is also, the beauty of it is that the first step is simple, right? Scary, but simple. And within our full control to shake off that silence, shake off the intimidation and just respect and listen to our own inner voice, make it an outer voice, and then share it with other people. Final thought before the break. The phrase I wrote down for myself is a hope in a dystopia. Um, Any other uh, advice that you have on how to be hopeful? I feel like I turn to you all the time when I'm like, this horrible thing has happened, Elise, and you like alchemize. (laughs) So, I mean, look, I I have dark days too, and I don't want to suggest that I don't. And my sort of mantra on my dark days is that throughout human civilization, as travesty and injustice has been incurred, we have but one choice, and it is to fight on the side of the righteous or retreat. And retreat is complicity. And therefore, I just try and make that choice every single day. But You know, my optimism comes from talking to so many different people who are engaging in so many different ways to make this a moment of transformation, whether you're challenging your business to be more inclusive, deconstructing speech patterns so that they are more reflective of the collective and, and diversity, or whether you're fighting in politics. It's, you know, to me, the inspiration is in acknowledging that I just have to do my part. I don't have to do the whole thing because there are so many amazing people doing their part. And that, you know, like justice 
is a journey. It's not a destination. And it is how we live our lives with integrity and and consciousness that matters, not that we can chalk up any individual victory because there will be victories and there will be setbacks. And this is a lifelong journey. I'm literally crying. Um, (laughs) Okay, we're going to take another quick break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Okay, I would love to just dive in real fast with the final moments I have with you to listen to uh, who you have brought in for us. Would you tell us, please? So, yeah, I mean, Ayanna Presley is one of the most powerful people, powerful voices that I have experienced in two decades of doing this work. She um, is someone who inhabited her whole life and brought to bear her lived experience and the lived experience of her constituents to win a race that, quite honestly, nobody wanted her to run in the first place. And in doing so has really transformed the conversation and the dynamics in Congress, certainly about reproductive freedom and justice, but about how we think about individuals um, and their dignity in every aspect of life. It's just been an honor to work with her. And she's a phenomenal leader who is going to just rise, rise, rise. Amazing. And uh, I I pulled just the clip where she reveals her alopecia. Oh, okay. And um, and I want to I want to just play this for everybody. This is my official public revealing. I'm ready now because I want to be freed from the secret and the shame that that secret carries with it. And because I'm not here just to occupy space, I'm here to create it. 
I think Ayana's decision to be public about her condition of alopecia was such, I mean, it was an act of courage, but it was an act of truthful honesty. And it makes her the powerful leader that she is that, um, you know, one of the things I really took from that decision and take from her generally as inspiration is this idea that if we live in secret shame, we are eroding our own power, no matter what it's about. And so her decision, which to me was like, she's beautiful no matter what, like no one should feel like they have to hide a medical condition. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know felt very, um, you know, important and challenging to her was spoke volumes about our self-acceptance and the power that comes from self-acceptance. So I take that to heart every day because I have things I don't like about myself and um, I'm sure they're affecting me at a much greater scale when I refuse to speak openly about them. She is an amazing leader. I feel so lucky to get to work with her. And on a really technical level, this is edited, it's lightly edited, but the camera just stays steady for large parts of it while she just thinks, literally thinks on camera. She picks her words. She, you, you can tell she's doing that process that we all do when we're in our um, most comfortable state where we try on an idea out loud and then we feel, does that feel right? Let me, mm, let me re, you know, adjust. That is a wildly brave thing to do, especially when it's something that's really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And it is, some, it is what will make everybody fall in love with us. But we have to trust that we can do that in real time. I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm so glad you're lifting her up in this moment on your show. Thank you. Thank you for bringing her in. Um, Elise, (laughs) I know you're a busy woman and you have to go. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. Oh my God, I have totally loved it. Samara, you uh, you are not just a coacher of superheroes, you are actually a superhero. So um, thank you for all you do. Thank you, my love. Oh my God, I'm going to go cry now. Um, Bye, love. Thank you to Elise for joining me. You can find out more about her and her new book in the show notes or on our website, permissiontospeakpod.com. I'm doing IG Lives every Thursday, you guys. So join me over at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram. Uh, It's Q&A style. So please feel free to uh, put me on the spot. I dare you. As always, send me DMs at Permission to Speak Pod on Instagram or submit through the website and let me know what is going on with your voice for our upcoming mailbag episodes. Coming at ya! Thank you to Sophie Lichterman and the team at iHeartRadio and all of you. We are recording this podcast at various locations around Los Angeles on land that is the historic gathering place for the Tongva Indigenous Tribe. And you can visit usdac.us to learn more about honoring Native land. Permission to Speak is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Vision, executive produced by Catherine Burt Canton and Mark Canton. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. 
Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 